So as you know, Queen Elizabeth II passed away at Balmoral Castle in Scotland on Thursday. She is remembered by our friends across the pond as a steadfast and gracious monarch whose reign over her kingdom lasted for an unprecedented 70 plus years. Richard Griffin served as the queen's royal protection officer. It's kind of like our secret service here in the U.S. Griffin once accompanied the queen as she walked in the hills just outside of Balmoral Castle when two American tourists who were on vacation suddenly approached the queen. Unaware of who she was, one of the hikers asked the queen where she lived. She replied that she lived in London, but she had a holiday home nearby, but did not point to the massive castle looming just off the walking path. One of the Americans then asked Elizabeth if she herself had ever actually met the queen. <laughs> I, I haven't, she said, but, but this man, pointing to her bodyguard, this man's been spotted with her on occasion. <laughs> so the unwitting tourists immediately turned their attention to the queen's bodyguard. And excitedly asked him, what was the monarch like in person? He said, hmm, oh, she can be very cantankerous at times. <laughs> but she's got a lovely sense of humor. Then one of the tourists gave his camera to the queen and said, would you mind taking our picture with this man? As they put their arms around him. So her majesty took a picture of the tourists with her bodyguard. Then Mr. Griffin took the camera and photographed the queen with the unsuspecting tourists. And as the two walked away, the reigning queen of England, Elizabeth II, said to Griffin, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when they show those photographs to their friends in America. <laughs> in today's passage, we see another account of a story where true majesty goes completely unnoticed. Our passage is Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of our glorious God, the true King of glory. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. 
And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Lord, lead us now by your spirit so that we might behold your glory in this scene. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So if this brief little scene were merely a personal journal account discovered by some archaeologist from 2,000 years ago, and the account was just of a poor Jewish kid from a small rural town who was born near Jerusalem, you would have never heard about this story if that were true. What makes these verses utterly astonishing is the true identity, the true majesty of the little kid laying in that feeding trough. The main idea that we see emerge here from out of the text is that Jesus reveals the full nature of God's glory to us through his willingness to be identified with us. Jesus reveals the full nature of God's glory to us through his willingness to be identified with us. Now we'll first look at the greatness of God's glory and then we'll consider the goodness of God's glory. Have you ever noticed that pretty much everyone has an opinion of what God is like or what God should be like? How many times have you perhaps had a conversation with someone or maybe you saw a post on a social media account that started with these words? To me, God is, and then just fill in the blank with whatever was written. Again, almost all people have some opinion of what God is like or should be like. If you think about it, even many atheists have a very strong opinion about the type of God that they don't believe in, which is rather ironic. But perhaps given the the variety of human experience and the, just the self-referenced nature of all people. 
maybe we shouldn't be surprised by this. The French writer Voltaire once said, God created man in his image, and we have returned the favor. The truth is that most people think God is a lot like them, only better. If we think about that, that's, that's not entirely wrong, but it's not right either. Consider the sheer fullness, just for a moment. Consider the sheer fullness of the greatness of God's glory, coupled with the unimaginable goodness of God's glory on display in the gospel. It is unlike anything any person has ever considered in any way. His glory is utterly unique. And so, this morning, as we consider this text, we rightly begin with awe. With Moses, we ask, who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praise, full of wonder in your works, Exodus 15 and verse 11. Or with David, we also proclaim, great, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. Psalm 145 and verse 3. Or with Jeremiah, the prophet, we also are in fearful awe of the one who said through his prophet, Do you not tremble in my presence? With Paul, with the Apostle Paul, we, we, we try to find words. We search for words to describe the greatness of the glory of Jesus Christ. In whom, Paul said, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2.3. Just, just let that truth wash over you for a moment. In Christ all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are ultimately found in Jesus Christ. If there is something worth thinking about, the value of that is ultimately traced to Jesus Christ. No matter what good thing you are considering. That is utterly astounding. And along with Job, 
as we think about it, as we're confronted by the reality of who God is from his word, we too are left to lay our hands over our mouths as we consider him who asks, shall a, a fault finder contend with the almighty? Job chapter 40. Beloved brothers and sisters, when you consider all that God is in his nature, let your well-deserved fear of God be the beginning of wisdom for you. Proverbs 9 and verse 10. And then let joy, let joy, let joy and peace, let joy and peace and fearlessness arise. Let it arise in your heart because of Jesus Christ. As you are reminded that the same God who spoke, who spoke the universe into existence. The God who spoke the universe into existence, who cast down Satan from heaven, who rules the word with his, with his all-powerful right hand, is the same God who promises, who promises to defend his people, who promises to defend you, and who promises to defend me from every last one of our enemies. We were just reminded of that at the very end of chapter 1 in Zechariah's prophecy in verse 71. If this God, if this God that I am proclaiming, if this God that is revealed through his word, if this God is for us, brothers and sisters, who, who, can, who can really be against us? Romans 8 and verse 31, how are you feeling this morning as you sit here? You, you might very well be exhausted. You might very well be beaten down from, from the relentless attack of the world, assaulting the greatness of the glory of God's character. Or you may be, as you sit here, the subject of attacks from Satan so that you might, you might be paralyzed by fear as you sit here among the people of God. What hope can encourage you? What can make the difference? What can change you from downtrodden and exhausted and paralyzed. Weary pilgrims, fellow weary pilgrims, have you not heard? Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary and his understanding of all things is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. Do you need strength as you're sitting there this morning to make it through another week? 
He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. So if you are at a place of weakness, he's got you right where he wants you, because he gives strength. He increases power. We realize that even even young people shall faint and, and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isaiah chapter 40. The greatness of the power and wisdom and strength of our God is the reason we can have comfort in this world. It is the reason we can have peace in this world despite the fact that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The reason he roars is because he's trying to terrify you. Why would we be afraid? The Lord of glory is our defender. Look, we know Satan is a defeated enemy and that God reigns supreme over all things, including the devil. So take heart. But pause for a moment this morning. Where are you feeling? Discouraged. Where are you feeling defeated in your life? And then let's take 30 seconds. Let's take 30 seconds to consider the greatness of the glory that is being proclaimed to you And imagine for a moment how that can change your perspective. One of the strategies of Satan is to get your mind off of God. Doesn't care how he does it. But to get your mind off of the king of glory and onto the difficulty of the circumstances of your life. But the truth of the gospel means that even when we are at our weakest, even when we are the most defeated, even when we are the most discouraged, at that very moment... We are in union with Jesus Christ, the King of glory. At that very moment, the Holy Spirit of God lives. He lives within us. Saints, discouragement dies in the presence of our undefeatable God. That is the hope we have if we are believers in Jesus Christ. You would think that given the singular greatness and the the utter invincibility of 
the God that sent his very own son to earth, you would think that when he did so, he would do so with tremendous fanfare. Would you not? A God this glorious sends his very own son to earth. Would you not expect to see unequaled majesty when he arrives? In the coming days, when the funeral ceremonies are held for Queen Elizabeth, ceremonies that mark her departure from this world, Expect a magnitude of pomp and formal majesty to be on display, a majesty befitting royalty. Perhaps a formality not seen in the Western world since, since the wedding of Prince Charles, now King Charles, and Lady Diana. And in contrast to that magnificent majesty, behold, behold the unceremonious circumstances surrounding the arrival to this world of the true king of glory. Now, Watch what Luke does here. There's something he wants us to see. It's so good. Back, back in the introduction to Luke, I said that when we get to verses like, like chapter 1 and verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. Or that when we get to verses like the opening verses of today's passage, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. I said that we have a tendency to read those verses and just kind of skip over them. Right? We want to skip over those kind of verses to get to the good stuff. And I was saying to us, let's pause and consider the reality of these verses because these verses are part of the good stuff, right? But in addition to what Luke is doing, we know what he's doing is rooting, rooting what he is saying in history so that you could say, yes, this happened. This is when it happened. This is who was involved. This is where it happened. All of that is true. But this morning, I... I want to give us a few more reasons that constitute why these verses and these first two verses in particular make up the good stuff. First, notice the way that Luke describes the people in our account. He presents them with a type of descending order of glory. The account begins with Caesar Augustus in verse 1. As the emperor or ruler of the most powerful nation on earth, he was therefore the most powerful man in the known world. You could make a case that he was the most powerful man 
who ever lived. The list descends, descends downward in glory through a regional governor named Quirinius, who no doubt was important in the region, but he wasn't Caesar. It descends further down to a man who is making the journey to a town called Bethlehem. He's a village carpenter. He's from, he's from a nowhere town called Nazareth in Galilee. The descending glory continues further down with a betrothed but officially unwed pregnant teenager. Note the end of verse 5. Mary, Joseph's betrothed, who was with child. Note the simple and plain truth of the text here. The fact that the Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit, refers to Mary's unborn baby as a child. Straightforward, clear, obvious. But the descending glory continues in the passage as this young woman gives birth to a boy, a firstborn son, and this poor kid from a rural town is wrapped in swaddling cloths and he's laid in a feeding trough. Zero pomp, zero fanfare, zero formality, zero glory. Thus far, utterly unrecognized majesty. The two most important people on this list are Caesar, and the little baby lying in a manger. Because here's what Luke wants you to see. Could two people, could any two people in the history of the world ever represent further ends of the glory spectrum? Augustus was an honorary title. Augustus was an honorary title given to Octavius, Rome's first and greatest emperor. It was bestowed upon him by the Roman Senate. The title literally means great in majesty or revered one. The the feeding trough kid just seems so insignificant. In contrast, Caesar Augustus, Caesar means emperor or ruler. Caesar Augustus, the the revered one, the one who's great in majesty, he ruled from 27 BC to 14 AD. Think about those dates there. 27 BC to 14 AD. In other words, he was on the throne when the events occurred 
outside the inn in this little town called Bethlehem. When Caesar Augustus, that is when Octavius died, his kingdom was over 3.3 million square miles, which is it's bigger than the United States. Augustus was so revered. He was so revered since he ruled over Rome at the, at the height of its powers. There was so much pomp and, and so much formal majesty evident upon his death that Roman histories record that Caesar Augustus was hailed, and think about these words in light of the Gospel of Luke. Caesar Augustus was hailed as the bringer of good news or the announcer of glad tidings because all that was ever heralded throughout his kingdom was about victory and the increasing glory of Rome. So when you had a herald who arrived from this king, from Caesar Augustus, you said, it must be good news. They always bring good news, glad tidings. One inscription at the birthplace of the Roman historian Herodotus called Caesar Augustus the savior of the world. According to Will Durant in his book, Caesar and Christ, so great was the glory of Caesar Augustus that some referred to Octavius as the son of God. Some in that region even argued that the long-awaited Messiah had come bringing peace and happiness to mankind. And it came in his person and under his reign. Against this backdrop, the Lord of glory says, I don't think so. You think Caesar Augustus is glorious? Into the world at this time, the true son of God, the descendant of David, the actual savior of the world, the long-awaited Messiah, the prophesied prince of peace. He snuck into Caesar's kingdom. And as of yet, totally unannounced. The king of glory came not robed in majesty, but cloaked in darkness under the cover of night. Behind an overcrowded inn in a type of farm stable, clothed in abject humility, in a tiny little town that apart from his birth, we may never have heard of. With Luke's emphasis on this little town of Bethlehem, a gloriously subtle irony emerges here. Because Jesus and Mary and the unborn baby, they lived in Nazareth. The only reason they were in Bethlehem at 
this specific time, verse 1, was because a decree went out from the most powerful man in the world ordering a census. That is, an official recording or count of the people in his kingdom, including some details about each and every person. And this little baby just happens to fly in under the radar. As Caesar, think about this with me, as Caesar is attempting to count, to number the people in his kingdom, in an attempt to to glory in the vastness of the Roman Empire, one who rules an everlasting kingdom, a little boy whose glory and whose kingdom so far outshines Augustus and Rome, it's not worth comparing them. So from a human perspective, it was Caesar Augustus's decree that drew this little family to Bethlehem so that the prophecy of Micah 5.2 would be fulfilled. But you, O Bethlehem, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. In other words, All powerful rulers on earth make nice little servants in the hand of God to do his bidding to get this small child from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Luke's gospel, Luke's gospel in its entirety is the answer to the who question. Who is this poor kid from a small town? The answer is he is the son of God. The answer is he he is the son of man. The answer is he is the prince of peace, the savior of the world, the one who brings good news. He is the one who is the good news. He is the ancient of days. He is the king of glory. Luke's gospel answers another question as well. The question of why? Why in the world would a king of the magnitude that we've been describing this morning, why would he come to earth in such humble, utterly unimpressive circumstances. It becomes even more stunning when we consider that this king who had created humanity had to take on humanity in order to arrive in this way. So again, we ask the question, why? The answer is that the goodness of God's glory matches the immense greatness of God's glory. Look, false gods worshipped by people around the world may be considered great in some, some sense, but none of them are considered good. All of their power is 
borrowed from the one true and living God who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And none of them, not one of them, can approach the goodness, the standard of goodness we see in God's holiness, in his compassion, in his mercy, in his tenderness. And as we see in our passage, in his humility, in identifying with us, his beloved people. There is no other being like this. No God conceived or worshipped by men has any true power unto himself. No God conceived or worshipped by men is good according to the perfect standard of the one true and living God. But think about what the implications are of what we've been talking about this morning. God's greatness gives us gospel confidence. That is, if we are in Jesus, no one can snatch us from God's hand. If you are in Jesus, you are safe. Because of the greatness of what he has accomplished and because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And... God's greatness combined with his goodness informs the gospel call. Have you ever thought that perhaps you are outside of the grace of God? Or maybe that God, despite his greatness, doesn't see you doesn't see your circumstances. Possibly he overlooked some of the details of the things that you personally are wrestling with. Look at this passage and think with me. When Jesus came, he came to the periphery. He's in a tiny little town behind an inn in a stable, because there's no place for him. Jesus came to the periphery to bring those who are in the periphery into the light of his glory. That is the good news of the gospel. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So why? Why? Why would he choose this way to enter the world Why would the true king of glory come in such an inglorious way? Why? For God so loved the world, he was willing to identify with us in our just normal living, breathing, everyday humanity. Why? Because God so loved the world, he was willing to identify with us and to live as one of us. So that he could fully represent us before his father in heaven. Why? Because God so loved the world. He was willing to represent us so that he could fully redeem us from our sin. So that 
we could be free from our sin forever. That good news beats any good news that was heralded in the Roman Empire. It's not even close. Why did he choose to come this way? Because God so loved the world that he was willing to give to us his perfect righteousness so that we as sinners could be counted as holy in the presence of God who is both just and the justifier of the ungodly. The answer just keeps getting more amazing. Why? Because God so loved the world, he redeemed us so the Holy Spirit could come and live within us in fulfillment of the new covenant promise given so long ago. But, but think about this one with me. Remember the queen, despite her great majesty, people felt comfortable approaching her, perhaps because of her kind demeanor or the way she carried herself, and then considered how, consider how much more the goodness of God given to us through the gospel makes it possible for us to be in his presence and the greatness of his glory through Jesus Christ. Amazing. Why, why would God come this way, this way? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal Life, that is free, joyful life with God forever. Beloved, in this, the love of God was made manifest. That is, it was made clear and obvious among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live, so that we might truly live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent us his son to be the propitiation of our sins. That truth is the greatness and the goodness of God's glory on full display. That truth is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To him be glory, honor, majesty, and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, would you lead us by your Holy Spirit, which indwells us? Cause our hearts to overflow with joy and wonder and praise at the reality of what Jesus has accomplished for us and because of the reality of what is revealed about you 
through his coming to earth. Lord, we are amazed. We are amazed with Jesus. And we love Jesus. So much so we want to bang cymbals in praise. We can't wait to worship you. So lead us now, I ask, in his name. Amen.